Greetings. Welcome to another edition of Voice for the Mountains, a program dedicated to ending the environmentally destructive practice of mountaintop removal mining. Even as I speak, this form of coal mining is currently destroying our beautiful Appalachian Mountains, one by one, permit by permit. If you are a newcomer to the issue of mountaintop removal, or MTR as it is commonly referred to, please visit the websites ilovemountains.org and appalachianvoices.org for more information. Voice for the Mountains is an independent program which presents a summary of the best media pieces on the subject of mountaintop removal mining. I am your host, Barbara Strangfeld, and am solely responsible for the editorial comments on this broadcast. The podcast is produced and directed by Joseph Puentes and can be found at h2opodcast.com slash mountains dot html. The beautiful acoustic music you hear is entitled Mountaineer Creek and is provided by Chris Proctor. Please visit Chris at www.chrisproctor.com. And now, on to our program. Welcome to another edition of Voice for the Mountains. So glad you were able to tune in and listen to the broadcast. We have a very special treat for all our listeners. The wonderful folk singer Tom Paxton has recorded a beautiful new piece called How Beautiful the Mountains. You can go to his website, www.tompaxton.com, and download this wonderful song for yourself. But just for this evening, I want to share the chorus of it. It moved me so much when I heard it. And, you know, uh, the mountains are always a place of peace and serenity. And it is uh, such a terrible tragedy that our Appalachian Mountains are being destroyed by the very environmentally destructive process of mountaintop removal. And it is my hope and prayer that you will become a voice for the mountains, and together we can all return these mountains to a place of peace. So here now we play for you the chorus of How Beautiful the Mountains How beautiful upon the mountain Are the steps of those who walk in peace How beautiful upon the mountain Are the steps of those who walk in peace I hope you enjoyed that as much as I do. Uh, my version of it is practically worn out already. Now let's get on to some of the news uh, in the world of mountaintop removal mining, and we've got a lot for you this evening. Uh, the first is a piece that I found in Red Orbit News, and you can uh, look at that at www.redorbit.com. Rick Steelhammer is the writer. And uh, we appreciate this piece very much. It's uh, called A Different Kind of Tourism. From his 50-acre peninsula, a forest surrounded by a sea of mountaintop removal activity, Larry Gibson hosts a sort of exhibition coal mine in reverse. 
There's a 900-acre mountaintop removal mine right next to my land and a total of 13 permitted mines around me, he said. I'm completely surrounded by it. When Gibson was a child, his patch of woodland on Caford Mountain used to lie below a series of higher knobs and ridges extending into Raleigh County. Now his place is the highest point on the mountain. And I think I've talked about this before in previous broadcasts, you might remember. For better or worse, and Gibson will be quick to tell you, it's for the worse, his place now offers one of the best viewpoints this side of an airplane cabin to get a look at mountaintop mining in action. Since the late 1980s, when mountaintop removal began to change the landscape around his home, thousands of people have visited his property to see for themselves what the process involves. I've had people from Israel, Australia, from all over the world come here, said Gibson as he sat on the porch of his solar-powered cabin. In the past 18 months, more than 1,300 people have signed his guest book after making the drive to the head of Cabin Creek Road, then up a winding gravel road to the Stanley Ayers Park, the land trust Gibson created to protect his land in perpetuity. Among them were CNN's Anderson Cooper, who later named Gibson a CNN hero for his work in defending the planet, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., here to film a documentary based on his book Crimes Against Nature, and singer, songwriter, and Cross Lanes native Kathy Mattia. In the past 20 years, we've had over 12,000 people come here, said Gibson. We get school children, college students, church groups, environmental groups, and people who just want to see what mountaintop removal is all about. And George Bush has sent more reporters to me than anyone else. Starting on Saturday, the West Virginia Sierra Club will begin hosting once-monthly minivan tours to Gibson's property from Morgantown and Charleston. Other dates for the tours include August 16th and September 13th. Even here in coal country, a lot of people still don't know what mountaintop removal is and does, says Jim Sconyers, conservation chair of the State Sierra Club. If you're not an avid conservationist, chances are good you've barely heard of it. But once you've seen it, the scales will fall from your eyes. And since everyone who turns on a light switch is in a sense responsible for it, everyone needs to know what mountaintop removal involves. I do this to educate people, Gibson said. Mountaintop removal is still one of West Virginia's best-kept secrets. While some people outside the coal fields are beginning to hear about it, they don't really understand the effects of what it does until they see for themselves. Here, you can do that. Gibson left Kanawha County for Ohio when the deep mine where his father worked closed. He worked in a Cleveland-area auto manufacturing plant until the mid-1980s when he returned to Cayford Mountain and bought what was left of the family home place. They started surface mining here in 1986 or 1987, he recalled. The first dynamite I heard going off was in 1987 from off in the distance. Now it goes off as much as 12 times a day from just below here. Gibson says he has grown so accustomed to the constant growl and clatter of heavy equipment in operation just off his property boundaries that he barely notices it. Blasting is another matter. In addition to noise and tremors and a series of deep foot-wide cracks jutting across his land, 
Rocks from blasting at the mine routinely fall on his lawn and family cemetery. One section of his land borders a reclaimed section of a mountaintop removal mine where a sparse growth of grass and foliage clings to a rocky slope. When they're finished, this will be the world's biggest chia dog, Gibson quipped. Trees will never grow here again. There's no topsoil. An early opponent of mountaintop removal mining, Gibson said he initially had difficulty getting two people to listen to me. He said the tide has now changed now that the word about mountaintop removal and its effects is getting out. One thing that really encourages me is young people, he said. When it comes to mountaintop removal and the problems it causes, they get it. They know there are better ways to mine coal. If we went back to using mainly deep mines, we would put thousands of miners back to work, and we wouldn't destroy our mountains. Since I first got involved in this, the coal companies have destroyed more than 2 million acres of Appalachia, he said. Every day, more than $5 million worth of coal leaves this hollow. Yet you don't see any signs of wealth on your drive up here, do you? Some people say I've got an attitude, and I guess I do. But I wasn't born with it, and I didn't have it when I first moved back home from Ohio. When you've seen what it was like here before, mountaintop removal began, and look at it now. It just does something to you. This is a beautiful state. It deserves better. This piece was um, originally published um, as the Charleston Gazette and then um, uh, published by Red Orbert. Again, we thank Rick Steelhammer for this wonderful account, and I think we've definitely talked about Larry Gibson before. He's, he's one of the chief uh, movers and shakers in trying to end mountaintop removal mining, and it's thanks to him that thousands and thousands of people have been educated about uh, this process. And again, also, I want to give a tip of the hat to all the young people that um, Larry Gibson mentioned in his article. Uh, college students from colleges all around the Appalachian area have been working hard also to end this process. And it's just a joy to see them join in and, and help try to get this process stopped. So, uh, again, Rick Steelhammer, Red Orbit, hats off to you for a great article. Now, uh, one of the people that um, Larry Gibson talked about is one of my favorite people, and that's the country music singer Kathy Mattia. She has done so much to help the cause of ending mountaintop removal mining. Uh, as he mentioned, she's from the area, and she grew up in Appalachia, and she has family members that were miners. And she has made it her business, um, despite a very busy career, uh, to work hard to educate uh, uh, people about mountaintop removal mining and to work hard to end the process. And so we've got a couple articles about Kathy, and I'd love for you to write her a fan letter and tell her not only how much you enjoy her music, uh, but also how much you appreciate her efforts. And the first one was in the Daily Press. And even though it's in July, they're talking about Kathy Mattia's uh, uh, Christmas plans. And she's going to be riding what's known as the Santa train this year. And uh, this comes from Bristol, Virginia. And it's an article that was in the Bristol Herald Courier. And you can uh, look at their paper at www.bristolnews.com. And it's by the Associated Press. 
Country singer Kathy Matias says riding the Santa train will be the highlight of her Christmas this year. The Cross Lanes, West Virginia native, says the trip will allow her to participate in the lives of the people she has been singing about on Cole, her latest album. Released in April, Cole is an album of songs about mining and hardships many miners face in Appalachia. Matias' grandfathers were both coal miners, and she has toured mountaintop removal mine sites in southern West Virginia. The Santa Train will be making its 66th annual trip on November 22nd and distributing 15 tons of toys and gifts to children at 14 stops in Kentucky, Virginia, and Tennessee. The project is co-sponsored by CSX, Food City, and the Kingsport Area Chamber of Commerce in Tennessee. And a couple reasons uh, not uh, for reading this, not only to sort of highlight the efforts that Kathy Mattia is making uh, to get the issue of mountaintop removal mining better known, but also uh, maybe you want to uh, contribute to the Santa Train project uh, for the kids in Appalachia, and if so, you can contact CSX or Food City or the Kingsport Area Chamber of Commerce. And that's not the only thing that uh, Kathy Mattia has been busy with. Um, She lent her efforts to saving a historic building uh, in the Charlestown, West Virginia area. And uh, she is hoping that it's going to be a building that's going to be used to talk about the history in that area. And this story you can find at the Herald Mail online, www.heraldmail.com. And Matthew Umstead is the reporter, and we thank him for the story. And country music singer Kathy Mattia visits Charlestown. Coal mining is very much a strong thread in the life of country music singer Kathy Mattia. The Kanawha County, West Virginia native's grandfathers were miners. Her mother worked for the United Mine Workers, and her brother still works in the coal industry. Jefferson County's historic ties to one of the coal industry's most tumultuous times in state mining history provided a strand for the singer's visit to the county's old jail in Charlestown. During a two-hour stop between shows in Morristown, New Jersey, and Orkney Springs, Virginia, Mattia toured the recently restored living quarters of the county jailer and the adjoining cell block, both of which have been converted for state circuit and family court. In 1922, the jail held the leaders of a labor uprising among coal miners in southern West Virginia that became known as the Battle of Blair Mountain. And we have talked about that on previous uh, issues of Voice for the Mountain. Among the treason trials that followed at the county's historic courthouse in Charlestown was that of Bill Blizzard, considered by authorities to be the general of the miners' army, according to historic accounts. All charges against Blizzard eventually were dropped. It's just great to be here and get to see this, Matias said, and it just happened to be right exactly where we're driving through today, Matias said in a press conference at the old opera house. It's wonderful to see you honor the past and moving forward into the future. They don't build buildings like these buildings anymore. They just don't do it, Matias said. During the tour, I looked at someone that was with me and said, what did the people do that held you here? Were they just the worst of the worst? Because this jail is like so airtight. It was so much easier to bring in the wrecking ball and knock it down and slap something new up. up. There are generations who will benefit from this work that you guys have done. County Commissioner Jim Surkamp joked that a wrecking ball would surely have bounced off the jail, which was slated for demolition in 2000. 
The plan was protested by Carol Gallant, who said county leaders at that time failed to comply with laws that required a historic review of property listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Six years and several fundraisers later, the jail's preservation was assured by a change in political climate on the county commission. It's been a long fight. Matias' visit attracted a small crowd of fans and community leaders who sought autographs and the opportunity to meet the 49-year-old Grammy winner who arrived in her tour bus about 10 a.m. Jefferson County Deputy Circuit Clerk Laura Rattini was excited about Matias' visit. She's inspiring, said Rattini, describing herself as a huge fan. Her music's from the heart. Her favorite song is Matias' Grammy-winning single, 18 Wheels and a Dozen Roses. Matias said the Sago mining disaster in West Virginia inspired her latest album, Coal, which was released April 1st. I was really touched by that and spent so many hours just like everybody holding my breath. When asked about the controversial strip mining known as mountaintop removal, Matias recounted her childhood days hiking, running trout lines, digging for nightcrawlers, and exploring caves. Because I spent so much time falling in love with this place as a kid, I had a real visceral reaction when I saw mountaintop removal. And the thing that struck me is that a lot of people who are living at the base of these mines have no voice for their story to be heard. They don't have multi-million dollar PR firms behind them, said Mattia, who indicated a willingness to help them achieve that. Everybody's just trying to keep their way of life going. Everybody. And so how do we do that in a way that nobody has to be marginalized? That's some great work by Kathy Mattia. Not only is she helping to preserve some of West Virginia's historic buildings that hold a lot of mining history, but she's also concerned about the future. She's also concerned that the people who live uh, near the area of mountaintop removal will have a better future. So hats off to you, Kathy. Keep up the good work. We appreciate it so much. Our next story uh, is, is an encouraging story uh, as well, and it's about uh, the res- some residents of uh, Appalachia. And it was published in the New America Media, and you can find their website at news.newamericanmedia.org. And the title of the story, uh, is a co- which is a commentary by author Jeff Biggers, is called Appalachian Residents Have Found the Antidote to Coal. Something historic is taking place in West Virginia this summer, Mr. Biggers reports. Faced with an impending proposal to strip mine over 6,600 acres, nearly 10 square miles, in the Coal River Valley, including one of the last great mountains in that range, an extraordinary movement of local residents and coal mining families has come up with a counter-proposal for an even more effective wind farm. Mother Jones, the miner's angel, once declared, pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living. Having witnessed the destruction of more than 470 mountains and their adjacent communities in Appalachia, the Coal River Valley citizens are doing just that. On the front lines of one of the most tragic environmental and human rights scandals in modern American history, the community-wide Coal River wind advocates have devised a blueprint to get beyond the divisive regional politics and break the stranglehold of King Coal on the central Appalachian economies. The Coal River Wind Project is the first bottom-up, community-based, 
full-scale assessment to directly counter the nightmare of mountaintop removal with a renewable energy and economy alternative prior to the actual mining. We have a choice. It's not simply coal or no coal, jobs or no jobs, Mr. Biggers writes. The issue is how do we create jobs and clean energy forever and begin the transition in Appalachia and America away from dirty coal. All Americans have a chance to be part of Coal River Valley's landmark decision for our nation's dependence on renewable or non-renewable energy sources. Either we continue to hand out permits for mountaintop removal, two permits in this area have already been granted, unleashing millions of tons of explosives, blasting local communities to kingdom come, provide less than 200 jobs for 14 years of coal mining, contributing to dirty coal-fired power for continued carbon dioxide emissions and global warming, or we can stake out a third way in renewable energy and economic development. Consider this. This is really exciting, uh, and, and I, I really commend Jeff uh, for writing this article and doing the research. The Coal River Mountain Wind Project would create 200 local employment opportunities during construction and 50 permanent jobs during the life of the wind farm. It takes only 35 years for a wind farm to provide a greater number of one-year jobs than the proposed four surface mines combined. It would provide enough energy for 150,000 homes indefinitely, as well as a sustained tax income that could be used for the construction of new schools for the county. It would allow for concurrent uses of the mountains, including harvesting of wild ginseng and valuable forest plants, sustainable forestry, and mountain tourism, as Coal River Mountain is one of West Virginia's finest mountains. It would preserve the historic Coal Mountain heritage and protect the land and communities from blasting, dusting, poisonous drinking water, increased flooding, damaged homes, and personal property and devastated wildlife habitat. In 1892, the Chicago Tribune wrote in an editorial, How long can the earth sustain life if we depend on the wonderful power of coal? The Tribune editors lambasted Americans for our lack of vision, our lack of energy conservation, and our need to invent appliances to exhaust with ever greater rapidity the hoard of coal. And mind you, this was in 1892. They declare, doubtless, the end of coal, at least as an article of a mighty commerce, will arrive within a period brief in comparison with the ages of human existence. In the history of humanity from first to last, the few centuries through which we are now passing will stand out prominently as the coal-burning period. The Tribune editors in 1892 assumed that Americans would be moved beyond coal and onto renewable energy sources. We may be a hundred years late, But the realities of global warming and climate change and the brutal process of extracting coal should remind us that it's not too late for the rest of the nation to be a part of this exciting new energy future for Appalachia and the entire country. Well, Jeff Biggers, again, excellent article. I urge all of you to go to newsamericamedia.org and... um, Send this to all of your friends and, you know, comment on the article and tell uh, Mr. Biggers how much you you enjoy this and appreciate uh, this article. And it's great news for all of us to see a little bit of hopeful activity and counteractivity to mountaintop removal mining. Next, I'd like to talk to um, about an incident that happened just recently. Uh, I believe it was on Sunday, July 20th. 
and it's called uh, Crossing the Line for Zeb Mountain, and it comes from the Institute for Southern Studies website. That's at southernstudies.org, and their publication online is called Facing South, A New Voice for a Changing South. And you can read about this in its entirety, but here is a little summary of, of what went on. About 50 residents of Appalachian coal communities gathered yesterday on uh, eastward Tennessee, Zeb Mountain, where they marched in a nonviolent protest against, against National Coal Corps' mountaintop removal mining operations. Four marchers were arrested after they uh, stepped onto the company's property. Having already destroyed more than 1,300 acres of Zeb Mountain, Knoxville-based National Coal has set its sights on other peaks across the state. Among the places it wants to mine is land in Sunquist Wildlife Management Area, a public game preserve that drains into Nashville's drinking water supply. Now, um, I want to talk to all of you people who live in Tennessee and, and even those who, who do not and ask you, you to write to that state um, and uh, ask that no permit ever be given to mine in a land that it's a wildlife management area. That is, is just atrocious, and that someone would even ask to permit there is, is just a horrendous consequence, again, of mountaintop removal mining. I truly hope and pray uh, that peace will return to the Appalachians, and it is, after we heard such encouraging news, it's always heartbreaking to hear news like this. Our next article um, is going to talk about um, the, a conference that was held in Lexington, Kentucky, and it, it's on the University of Kentucky's website, and it was called The Impact of Engineering Earth, and it was held on July 21st through the 23rd. And the conference featured topics including mountaintop removal mining, urban planning for the Olympic Games, ecotourism, global warming, water diversion and irrigation, highways and transportation, and the social impact of mega engineering projects. And it was held at the University College of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences, Department of Geography. And the, uh, the conference had scholars presenting, uh, were hailing from Australia, Canada, China, Finland, India, Italy, Nigeria, Russia, Slovenia, and the United States. And it was held in honor of the late Gilbert F. White, a pioneering scholar in technology, hazards, and social policy research. And at the conference of special local interest was a presentation of the film Mountaintop Removal, followed by a discussion with the filmmaker and activist Michael O'Connell on the environmental dilemma created in eastern Kentucky by mountaintop removal mining. And the, con the conference really focused on mega-engineering projects, and uh, it refers to projects huge in scale and or cost. And such projects include hydroelectric dams, irrigation systems, coastal reclamation, river diversion, deforestation, ocean mining, surface mining, including mountaintop removal, military ecologies, construction of new cities and capitals, airports, harbors, railroads, airlines, highways, motels, theme parks, and tourist developments. Now, not all of that mega engineering is a bad thing, but certainly mountaintop removal is, and it's good that conferences such as this are allowing this issue to be discussed on an international level 
and perhaps some new solutions uh, to this problem can be found this way. So we applaud the University of Kentucky for uh, staging the conference and including mountaintop removal in it. Our next story I found fascinating. It actually comes from the Anchorage Daily News. Yes, that's right, Anchorage, Alaska, and it's called Beware of the Chuitna River Coal Proposal. And it was written by Alan Barras and as a commentary and was written just a couple weeks ago. And, and we don't think of the connection between mountaintop removal mining and Alaska, but listen to this, and, and I'm sure you'll be as fascinated as I was. Some Alaska energy projects make a lot of sense. In-state natural gas, geothermal, tidal, wind, and small-scale hydro come to mind. But some energy products, projects make no sense. And topping the list is the Chuitna River development proposed by Pack Rim Coal, Billed as the second largest open pit coal mine in North America, the project would strip sub-bituminous coal below wetlands 12 miles up the Chuitna River and its Lone Creek tributary just north of Tyanek. The stripped coal would be transported on a conveyor belt to tidewater at Ladd Landing, site of an abandoned Denina village adjacent to one of the early Cook Inlet canneries and then out into the inlet on a two-mile-long trestle where it would be loaded onto ships bound for China. Pack Rim is a Delaware company with roots deep in Texas. It is part of a consortium of private companies that their website refers to as the Hunt Group, which owns Hunt Oil and Arch Coal, among others. Now, here's the interesting part. Arch Coal is the second largest coal mining company in America and practices cost-effective but environmentally destructive mountaintop removal mining in Appalachia. The driving force within the Hunt Group is Ray L. Hunt, heir to the H. L. Hunt oil fortune. Packrin's coal mine would potentially do some destabilization of a different kind. Their permit application states they would discharge 7 million gallons of mine waste a day into sedimentation ponds and then into the Chuitno River. The Lone Creek tributary would be completely mined over. A permit to wipe out a salmon stream has never been granted before, and to do so would establish a dangerous precedent. Their claims they can reestablish the fish run sound ominously like those on the West Coast where salmon fishing is now shut down. Pack Rim's published plans called for a road, airstrip, a 500,000-ton coal storage facility, and lodging for 350 workers on top of the Lad Landing historic site, erasing one more page in the powerful story of Cook Inlet history. The primary market for Chuitna Coal would be China, where it would be burned to generate electricity for China's burgeoning economy, an economy that so far has not enacted standards limiting global warming emissions. China will soon surpass the United States as the largest producer of carbon dioxide, the primary greenhouse gas, due mainly to burning dirty coal. It doesn't matter how many light bulbs we change or hybrids we drive, as long as China's coal stacks keep billowing greenhouse gases, some of it from Alaska's pack rims, if the pack rim permit is granted. So I think you can uh, 
imagine my surprise at reading this story and seeing and, and, and just being so sad that this process of mountaintop removal mining and the owners of these companies are now taking these kinds of, of, of processes and doing the same in Alaska. So you can see why it's doubly important that we work hard to stop mountaintop removal mining everywhere in this great nation of ours. And uh, now we'll be moving to the to the next issue, and this is something very interesting. Again, it, it gives me hope. Um, it, it's called um, it's an article with Congressman Fly over mountaintop mining sites. It was written by Cassandra Kirby Mullins of the Herb of the Herald Leader, and you can read the article at heraldleader.com, and takes place in Hazard, Kentucky. Two congressmen who flew over dozens of mountaintop mining sites Friday said they were struck by the magnitude of the mining operations. U.S. Representative Ben Chandler of Kentucky and Norm Dix of Washington spoke with residents living deep in the central Appalachian coal fields after landing here in what they described as a fact-finding trip that surveyed sites in eastern Kentucky and western Virginia. Dick chairs the House Appropriations Subcommittee that oversees environmental matters, giving him power over the budget of the Office of Surface Mining. It's the first time a member of Congress in such a position has come to Kentucky to view large-scale surface mining and meet with opponents. Dix, who seemed surprised at the vastness of the mine land, said that mountaintop removal might need to be reined in. He made the trip after repeated requests from Chandler, a fellow Democrat on the subcommittee. The amount of land that has been mined was quite substantial, Dick said moments after getting off the plane Friday at the Wendell H. Ford Airport in Perry County. In our state, we have very large clear cuts, and these were of even greater magnitude than those. I do think the question of sustainability comes up and what the consequences or the impact of this is on the environment. Dix, who has served in Congress for 32 years, said he will take the information from Friday's visit back to Washington. On board with the two congressmen were the director of the Office of Surface Mining and a member of Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, a group that opposes mountaintop removal mining. Reigning in mining, mountaintop removal uses explosives and heavy equipment to take off the tops of mountains and expose coal seams. However, opponents use the term to include other forms of surface mining, such as area mining. That involves blasting away only part of the mountain, but creates similar issues, including filling adjacent valleys and waterways with excess rock and dirt, which opponents argue damages the environment. The coal industry defends large-scale surface mining as the most economical way, the only way at times, to recover some coal. Dick said lawmakers may need to look at reining in mountaintop mining just as they did in the Northwest with clear-cutting, a process where a large section of trees in the forest are cut down and the trees are sold for use. We had clear-cutting of these very large areas, and we found it was doing a lot of environmental damage, Dick said, so we made the clear-cuts more discreet and we protected areas that were important to the environment. Dick said his subcommittee will look at whether... Uh, the government's doing its job adequately and whether it has the money and staff to carry out its duties. Friday's visit was a second attempt by the congressman to fly over the mountaintop mining sites. 
earlier this month, they were forced to cancel their trip because the battery was dead on the plane they were planning to use. Although Chandler said bringing Dix to Appalachia was top priority, he was reluctant to say Friday what his feelings are about restricting mountaintop mining. He said only that he was concerned about its effects on the environment. This is the first chance we've had to look at it, Chandler said. The main purpose in my mind today was to introduce the chairman of our committee to this process and what was occurring. We are going to be involved as it goes forward, and we are going to take into consideration all viewpoints. Well, I just want to say that I think this is pretty remarkable um, to have congressmen do a flyover of the area, uh, that especially one who is chair of a very powerful committee who is not immediately from the area, it, it is a big step in the right direction, and we applaud those efforts. And uh, I suggest uh, to everyone who is in Ben Chandler's district in Kentucky that they write him a thank you note and tell them how much he appreciates his efforts uh, to kind of get this issue out into Congress beyond the Appalachian states. Well, it looks like we're running out of time from tonight's broadcast. We have a lot of news, and we'll get to that in our next podcast, so be sure and stay tuned to our next issue of Voice for the Mountains. In the meantime, I'd like to close this podcast, uh, take you to a peaceful place, a place where mountains do bring peace and not destruction. And that can happen if you become a voice for the mountains and contact your congressman or woman uh, and your senators and ask them to support legislation to end mountaintop removal mining. So here again, we end with a beautiful song by Tom Paxton, the chorus of How Beautiful the Mountains. How beautiful upon the moon are the steps of those who walk in peace How beautiful upon the mountain Are the steps of those who walk in peace Well, that ends another edition of Voice for the Mountains. If you have a comment question, or article about mountaintop removal mining that you would like shared in a future program, just contact me, Barbara Strangfeld, at stopmtr at waterpodcast.com. That's stopmtr at waterpodcast.com. I'd like to thank Joseph Puentes for producing and directing this program, Chris Proctor for sharing his beautiful music, and all the good folks at ilovemountains.org and appalachianvoices.org. The 13th century Zen master, Dogen, wrote in the Mountains and Rivers Sutra, Although mountains belong to the nation, mountains belong to the people who love them. If you love the Appalachian Mountains and want to save them from destruction, then you become a voice for the mountains too, before it's too late. Thank you.